And if you're big, you can open your Bible to John chapter 5. So, we are back in this wonderful chapter. Going to wrap it up if we can. Maybe we, can, we can't. Next week we'll wrap it up. But we'll get a good jump on it today. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, witnesses. And to establish facts it's nice to have witnesses. Right? This is true in all kinds of situations. I mean we usually think of a criminal court system but it's true in life all the way through. You have to have witnesses like to sign certain legal documents and uh, Cheryl Lynn over there can stamp them for you. But um, those kind of, th- you have to have people that do that for important things in case something is ever questioned or authenticity is under scrutiny or something like that. You have to have, you have to have witnesses to get legally married, right? You still, they still require some kind of witness for that. Now I know in West Side Story, Tony and Maria just exchanged vows in a dress shop, <laughs> but that doesn't count because they're not legally married. Now they might have been married to themselves, but the, um, that's not a legal thing. But you've you got to have a witness for a, for a wedding, right? You can't do it like that. Nobody cares if you take a girl to, to dinner, except maybe her former boyfriend. But um, <laughs> But when you have a marriage, you got something else going on, right? There, there's common property, there's children together, there's certain benefits in commerce and in law that weigh in and all of that. So there's reasons to have legal marriage and le- legal marriage requires witnesses. Also, if you're going to put somebody in prison for 10 years, there's, there better be proof, right? So witnesses. Now sometimes material evidence can be a witness, but often there's people witnesses too. So just from those common examples in life, witnesses are more necessary the more important things are. Like if you're going to lock somebody away, that's pretty important. So there better be witnesses. If you're going to be legally married, there should be witnesses. All those kind of things. So let's think about that in terms of a much less common but potentially much more important scenario in life. So I want you just to kind of imagine yourself in this situation. What if you meet somebody who is a gifted and wise speaker, very talented and a very compelling personality who says that he's the unique and only begotten son of God. What would you do? What if that person says God, his father, shows him everything that the father is doing? What if that person says God his father has given all judgment to him and what if he says God his father does this so that all people will honor this man as as much as they honor the father equal to honoring his father in heaven and then he says someday in the future this fellow you meet one day he will call all of the dead out of their tombs so he can render judgment as to their eternal destination what would you think? You might think he's delusional. I mean those are pretty astounding claims, right? But let's say, let's say this person doesn't act in any way crazy at all. There's no sign of that. Let's say he's very kind and he's very gentle. Let's say he has a pretty keen insight into people that kind of blows you away how wise he is and discerning where people are. Let's say he treats people with 
warmth and an interest in them personally that is really rare amongst human beings. He just seems to have it all together in terms of caring for other people. He seems particularly kind to social outcasts and maybe people that have made a lot of bad choices that other people stay away from. He actually focuses on them. Let's say he, he never joins in their, their loose ways or their harmful behaviors, but at the same time, he consistently shows an intense concern for their well-being. So you're noticing all of these things. You're bearing witness to these qualities. You, you, you pay attention to him because he's so interesting and he's, he's never selfish and he never takes advantage of anyone in any way. And he treats women with great respect. And even when he's just with the guys, he never talks about them or allows people to talk about them in any way that would be disrespectful or inappropriate. He lives really simply. He doesn't make a big deal out of his living simply. He just doesn't need things. He's very generous with his time and he listens very well to other people. And now he does show a little impatience sometimes with people that are sort of self-righteous and big on themselves. But mainly he does that to protect other people from their influence. And he talks about the Bible all the time, just constantly, but with a lot of understanding. And he's able to discern what really matters in the Bible, what the central truths are, and what he calls the weightier matters of the law. So you listen really carefully to him talk about the Bible and you, you realize he never misuses it. He's never quoting things out of context or misapplying things. He's really careful about what he says and he has this wonderful ability to get to the meat of it, to the heart of God in the Bible. And he talks a lot about love and, and mercy and forgiveness, but never for a second does he compromise on what is right or, or justify bad behavior but he's super compassionate towards those that are not good. He's really clear that God has a right to judge even if he claims that all the judgment's been given to him. And then one day he makes a man completely well who's been a major cripple, seriously crippled individual for 38 years. And you see that and you know the person and he gives sight to a blind person. And a withered limb that's completely atrophied is suddenly made completely whole and well and useful. And he's done that. And you're amazed. But then he did say all of these kind of wild things that make it sound like he's supposed to be equal with God. How would you put all that together if you met that person? Because that's who we're meeting here in John chapter 5. What would you think? What should they have thought? What would you do with a person like that? I mean, the, the claims are astounding. They're unheard of. They, they seem kind of way too far. But then all these other things, you have to factor all those other things in too and, and weigh all of that, right? Now, if you lived as a Jew in first century Palestine 2,000 years ago, you would believe that there had been prophets of God in your history as a people, people that spoke for God. And... You were fortunate enough to be born in a time when a new prophet showed up on the scene. His name was John. He liked to stick people in water. So they called him John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. And everybody regarded John as a prophet. Just about everybody. So you would also have as a first century Jew an expectation that the Messiah was coming but you probably thought of him more like kind of a king like King David, a, a war leader to deliver Israel from foreign domination because they were under the power of the Roman Empire, right? 
But John the Baptist, the new prophet, said that Messiah was coming soon. And you need to repent and be ready for him. And the man we've been discussing, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And he said the kingdom of God was at hand. So what would you do? How would you handle that person? I mean, a pretty compelling person to want to know. But then the claims are pretty wild, right? Well, there's a couple possibilities. You might want to just become his disciple. And whatever he's saying, whatever he is, you're in, right? You want to help. I'll, I'll help you. You might take kind of a wait and see attitude. You're not really sure what to think about him. You're just going to pay more attention and just kind of see if he blows it ever. You might want more proof. After all, the religious leaders in your community don't seem very favorably disposed towards him. So they're saying he's uh, not somebody you should follow. So maybe, maybe they're right. Well, you might weigh that. Some of your religious leaders openly say he's a madman. They even suggest that he's satanic. But none of that seems true of this person, Jesus. It just doesn't seem true of him. So here we are in our text today in John chapter 5 and after making these very claims to be the unique son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, Jesus brings forth witnesses and that's what we're going to talk about today, witnesses to the person that he is in his own words. So it's biblical that witnesses be provided. So way back in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, it says a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter must be confirmed. So that's a law in a criminal context but it really became a broader cultural principle within Judaism that we find even in the New Testament. For, for example in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Paul argued that his coming to visit the Corinthian church was to establish the facts there because he'd been pretty hard on them. He'd heard a lot of things going on there. And he says because, quote, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he even brought that into dealing with churches. In fact, if you're dealing with a church somewhere and somebody's doing that, that's an important element of that. Multiple witnesses. So today we're looking at the witnesses that Jesus points to to verify his claims. And we're going to see that he doesn't simply build a case on witnesses um, because that's actually not the real issue. But that is what he's going to do too. So we expect people on a jury or in daily life to try to be objective, right? In, in weighing testimony or evidence. But we also know that personal prejudice comes into that. That's why they have these preemptive things where the lawyers can throw you off a jury, right? I was at a trial once, they threw me off immediately. No, that happened to me twice actually, they, right away they threw me off. Once because it was about a, a case in a juvenile prison camp and I did Bible studies at a juvenile prison camp and I told them that and they threw me right off. And, and uh, some kid was suing the camp or something like that. And then there was another trial they threw me off of, what was that before, I can't remember. Anyway, um, oh it was about, it, uh, psychology was a key component in the testimony against this killer person. And, um, and I said, I have my doubts about the validity of psychology. And, and, and so they threw me off. So um, I just said I didn't 100% trust it. And there's different ways of looking at it. So they threw me off right away. So I've never really got to sit on very many juries in my life. But anyway, um, that's what this is about. So 
when a, a lawyers are looking for those prejudices or assumptions that might twist your view or even ideologies that might keep you from being objective about a certain case right well that actually is the problem here with Jesus he's going to present his witnesses but the real reason for the unbelief that he's dealing with is the disposition of the heart it's not a lack of evidence it's the disposition of the heart of the people he's talking to so in John chapter 5 people is talking to he's giving a discourse a, a kind of a lecture to leaders in the temple so they're probably priests for sure and maybe some rabbis thrown in there and they think he deserves to be killed because he's called God his father and made himself equal with God that's what they said so that he deserved death so he's presenting his case here after healing this man that had been severely crippled for 38 years so they don't seem to care that that happened so all that's going on here so Jesus is going to reveal as he talks about witnesses that his opponents are not objective truth seekers in this particular case which is always essential if you're looking for the truth right but um, it's the religious leaders task it's actually their task in life before God to evaluate Jesus fairly on the basis of scripture that's what they should be doing but that's what they don't seem to be able to do they they know the Bible but they don't really know it well enough they don't get it and they don't even get the core principles of it so their their understanding is clouded and the cause the cause is more than poor training it's something in them it's this human rebellious heart issue and pride and control and those kind of things so so Jesus begins with the standard principle his testimony doesn't need to be accepted as proven based on himself alone that's what he says verse 31 so we're in John 5 31 if I alone testify about myself my testimony is not true now the word true here is being used in the sense of valid because obviously a person can say something that's true and only they know it right obviously that's true but um, he's talking about, in fact, if you have an NIV, a New International Version, your Bible says valid there. And that's a proper way to translate that word. It's the same word for truth, but it can be used for both ideas. So Jesus is saying that what could be factually true needs to be supported by testimony. That's what he's saying. But here we're talking about validity, something established as a fact, something confirmed as a fact by more than one person. So that takes us to verse 32. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that testimony which he gives about me is true. Oh, that's interesting. There's another person. Well, that's the Father. That's God himself. And the problem is Jesus' opponents, they're not going to believe the Father because of this way that they are, this darkness in them. So we'll get to that later on. But first, for their sakes and even for their salvation, Jesus brings up someone they do know about. And so he brings up the only living prophet of the last centuries John the Baptist he brings him up so that's his case verse 33 and verse 33 if you've been with us all this time in John's gospel it takes you right back to chapter 1 he says you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth so John has testified about Jesus and so Jesus here is talking about that delegation that was sent by the temple leaders to John the Baptist. We talked about it in chapter 1. It was a big event. Men from Jerusalem, specifically priests and Levites, the Levitical 
um, servers of the temple were sent on an official mission to interview John the Baptist and ask him who he was, not his name, what his ministry was, what he was all about, who are you? And in chapter 1 verse 19, um, it says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Notice what it said there. This is the testimony of John. So he's bearing witness. Here's a witness, right? So he calls it testimony. John the Baptist is bearing witness to the leaders of Israel, a delegation from them. And what does he say? Well, if you go back to chapter one and verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. So when they say, who are you? I'm not the Christ. Verse 21, he says, I'm not Elijah either. And I'm not the prophet that Moses predicted would come someday. Somebody that can actually have Moses' authority to give law and change the law of God. He says, I'm not that person. So who was he? Well, verse 23 of John chapter 1, he quotes Isaiah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. I am preparing the way for the Lord's coming. That's what I'm doing. And they ask him, why is he baptizing then? Why, why are you doing this weird thing, baptizing Jews, which we've never done before? And he says in verse 26 of chapter 1, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's a pretty important person. That's a pretty significant person, right? My goodness. So there's somebody coming after him, somebody very special. In fact, he says, he's already here. Because he says, among you stands one whom you do not know. So he's already there. So John is a prophet. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the promised prophet like Moses. And he's baptizing to get Israel to repent in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Someone whose sandals he's unworthy to untie. That someone is very, very special. And then the delegation goes away and John tells his disciples in verse 29 of John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then he tells them that he existed before John even though John is about six months older than Jesus is. They're cousins, remember. Their moms were pregnant at the same time, but John is older, but he says, he existed before me. And then in verse 34, he says, Jesus is the son of God. So all of that together, John bore witness to, to the disciples. He didn't tell all of that to the delegation, but they did have enough in his words to them to conclude that he was the Messiah. Okay, then in chapter five, back to chapter five, Verse 33, Jesus reminds the Jewish leaders of John the Baptist's words, but Jesus also tells them he doesn't need John's witness. That's kind of interesting. So, verse 33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth, verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Isn't it nice that they're trying to kill him and he wants them saved? They literally want him dead and he wants to save them. That's why Jesus brought up John. Even though Jesus doesn't need John's testimony, doesn't need human testimony, why bringing him up? Why is he bringing him up? So that they might be saved, these priests and uh, rabbis from the temple. 
And they had a certain level of respect for John. They never really trusted him totally because he was outside their authority. John acted on his on God's behalf, not with them. But John did point to Jesus and all they really needed to do was to believe John. He, he, they, they could have believed him and found salvation in Christ. Because if they had, they would follow Jesus. They did hear John, but at some level they honored him. Verse 35 says, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We've talked before about this, but you cannot exaggerate the impact John the Baptist had on the world in that time. I mean, he was remembered profoundly for decades after his death. So um, he was very influential, very popular. But you know, you can be really popular and people don't really listen to what you say. Have you ever had that problem or, or seen that happen in different circumstances? Because while his light was shining, he was very popular, not so much among the religious elites. They were always sort of wondered about him. But the, the people, the common people loved him and went to hear him. That doesn't mean that most of the people accepted his message and repented and truly prepared their hearts for the coming of the Messiah because they didn't do that. But some did. But they, they came to him because he was new, he was interesting, he was powerfully gifted and his lifestyle of self-denial kind of gave him this aura of a holy person, you know. So they, they, they did think he was a special person. They thought he was a prophet for sure. He was a great man. Jesus called him the greatest man that ever lived until his time. That's pretty great. So while some had a sincere life-changing response to him, most people didn't. It's really interesting in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus actually describes how he and John the Baptist, both Jesus and John the Baptist, were received by their generation. And it's pretty interesting. It's the most detailed, we, detailed portion that we have where Jesus is actually speaking about who John the Baptist was. And this is Matthew 11. He also addresses the spiritual condition of the generation that they came to. So Matthew 11:16. I'm just going to quote a little part of it. Jesus said, to what shall I compare this generation? Wouldn't you love to have Jesus here today to say, to what shall I compare this generation? I'm not sure I'd want to hear that. It is like children sitting in the marketplace who calls out to the other children. So these are kids, they're playing in the market. And saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then he says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So Jesus and John had completely different ministry styles. Neither of them found approval with the powers that be, with the religious authorities. So John was practically a monk. I mean, he, he never went into cities as far as we know. He lived in the wilderness. He wore weird clothes. He uh, had extremely limited diet of locusts and honey. That's probably a, we could probably make a fortune selling that diet. But um, he never touched wine uh, ever. It was a Nazarite vow he probably made. Jesus, of course, did wonders. He mingled freely with people. He accepted invitations to weddings and banquets and all kinds of stuff like that. He made wine, let alone drank it. And he went where all the people are, where the sinners are. He would 
consciously go to, to be where they were to minister to them. So two servants of God completely different. One offered the dance and one offered the dirge. And John would be the dirge side. Repent, mourn, grieve. Jesus was I'm here, celebrate. Come with me, follow me. Now a dirge, what's a dirge? It's that slow funeral music. It's, it's a downer, right? I actually love that old song, beat the drum slowly and play the fife lowly. Remember that song? It's an old cowboy song. Well, it's actually an older song than that. It's an old sailor song that turned into an old cowboy song. But you can't dance to it. That's the key. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a mournful mournful thing beat the drum slowly but Jesus was the long-awaited one he was the restorer of Israel he's the savior he's come to bring salvation he's bringing the kingdom that's time to sing and to rejoice and to dance that's what he's talking about but the religious elite said well John he's demon possessed and Jesus he's a loose living sinner because he goes to these parties and actually sometimes they called Jesus a demon too, right? Because, well, they have to explain the miracles somehow. So they said Beelzebub, the devil, does those miracles through Jesus. That's what they, they said about him. So the elites, um, they would, it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered if the common people had truly embraced each man's message to them. I don't think they would have ever have believed. But if there was repentance and faith and loving God and welcoming the king as Lord, that would have been it. But that wasn't there. It wasn't even really there amongst the people, most of them. It was just not to be. And we'll see that in the future. But Jesus doesn't need John's testimony, he says. He has something greater. So John 5:36, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. So the Father is his witness. That goes right back to what we were saying earlier. I don't need John's testimony. The things I do, I can only do because of God. There's no other explanation for them. The miracles were abundant. They were truly miraculous. They weren't like modern miracles. They were real miracles. Unexplainable by natural laws. In fact, miracles, if you remember from John chapter 3, his miracles were the thing that brought this great Jewish theologian Nicodemus to come to Jesus by night. Remember that? You remember what he said? John chapter 3 verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Very discerning. He's exactly right. He comes on that basis. That's actually the reasonable conclusion to make. God is doing something wonderful through this man. I want to know more. But as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, he said, you need to be born again. You need a new birth. If you're going to really understand and appreciate who I am, you need a new birth. And only the Holy Spirit can make that happen. That's what Jesus says there in John chapter 3. Miracles have a value. They create interest, but they don't create saving faith. They don't do that. Not the kind of faith God wants. I'm sure you all know that God doesn't want people to believe that he exists, right? See, that's the modern thing. When we talk about God and Christianity and all this stuff, modern people, I don't know if God exists. The Bible doesn't care if you believe. I mean, of course it cares. But I mean, that's not the issue in the Bible. Whether God exists. Of course he exists. It's, it's like an assumption that God exists. He created everything. And uh, 
We talked about that a little bit last week, but yes, God exists. So that's not even like the question. They, they, they don't talk about atheism in the Bible because um, there were atheists then, but it's, that's not even the, the question being asked. God not only exists, but he has revealed himself in great detail who he is, what he expects from us, all his rational creatures, what he expects from all his rational creatures, and he tells us how to be right with him. So he tells us who he is, what he expects, and how to be right with him. That in great detail, that's what the Bible is. So faith is not, oh, I think God exists, versus I don't think God exists. It's not that. Faith is a commitment to God as he has revealed himself. It's a commitment to a person. So Jesus would, Jesus would point us to the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. That doesn't say anything about believing, but you can't do it if you don't believe. So, I mean, believing is uh, inherent in that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is what is right. That is what God wants. God does not exist for us. That's what you have to explain to people. God doesn't exist for you. You exist for him. Oh, I thought he was Santa Claus. No, (laughs) he's the creator of the universe. And he's your moral judge. And he made you to serve him. That's why you exist. And if you don't get that, you've lost the whole thing. It doesn't matter if you believe he exists or not. If you don't know who he is, if you're not doing what he wants, if you're not pursuing him. So that's the right thing. So here's the plain truth about why the men Jesus talking to hate him. They reject the witness of the father. And this is what I would call the great failure the great failure. It's entirely on them. Verse 37. The father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he has sent. So here Jesus directly says that the father sent him. And the Father has given testimony to him. And it's really clear from verse 36 that Jesus primarily views the Father's witness as the miracles that he does, the works that he does. How can you explain them away? Satan really can't do all of that. He might can do some tricks sometimes, but he can't take a withered arm and just make it well. He can't do that. He has no creative power that way. Only God can do those things. So Jesus specifically says in verse 37 that these men have not heard God's voice or seen his form. So no, God has not spoken to them personally. Now in ancient times, ancient times even in the first century, God did speak to and even appear to Abraham, for example, and Moses, right? So Abraham even had dialogues with God. If there's just 30 people in Sodom, would you spare it? I mean, he's actually arguing with God. So they had a conversation. Uh, God came uh, in a human form to, to Abraham and had a meal at his tent there. And as for Moses, well, Exodus 33:11 says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Well, that's never happened to me and it never happened to these Pharisees either. That's a pretty unusual friendship there and Moses was very special. But the first century priests and rabbis, well, they didn't have any communication with God that way. They didn't see him. They didn't see his form. Both Abraham and Moses saw God in some form. God again, he came in a man form to meet with Abraham. Moses saw the burning bush. Moses saw the fire on the mountain. Moses 
saw uh, Moses and the elders of Israel since they actually saw the form of God but it doesn't explain at all what they saw we know it wasn't everything God is because God told Moses if you see me you'll die if you see my glory you'll die so they couldn't see all of it but they got a sense of it they got some kind of form some visual representation of him so what where then has God testified of Jesus well if the miracles are a witness what do they say about the man who performs them right So verse 36 again, the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So they should know because they're seeing God in him. In every action, in every word of Jesus, these men are looking at God. Why can't they see it? What caused the great failure? Whose problem is that? On whose part did this bad thing happen? This miscommunication where they can't see who he is. Although the father's bearing direct witness to him through his works. Some of you know that I came to California from the wonderful state of Indiana. To study film and television. That's why I came here. And the very first class you have is communications 101. When you go to film school or TV school. And they tell you what communication is. And then the very first page it explains to you, you need three things. A speaker, a medium, and a hearer, right? And hopefully have brains on the end with the speaking and the the thing. But you've got to have those kind of things or you're not doing any communication. For example, you know, sound doesn't travel in a vacuum, right? So like when planets blow up in space on Star Wars, it really doesn't go boom. It it goes, or ships blow up. (laughs) But that's boring, so they make them blow up. But... um, you know you, you have to have a medium right so air carries the sound from my voice to your ear right now that's what's going on so in fact it's going through that to your, your, your ear so that's all that's communication right there so Jesus is God in human flesh and even if the rabbis don't acknowledge who Jesus is at the very least as someone that God sent into the world claiming to be God's unique son well Jesus told these guys in verse 23 that Part of God's purpose in sending him into the world was to be equally honored with the Father. That's what he's, that's what, that's the message. And the evidence is all the things that he does. His perfect character, his wisdom, his handling of scripture, and the miracles. All of it, it's all part of this testimony of who this person is. The most utterly unique man that ever lived. A totally perfect, uncompromising, holy man who loves everybody, even the worst sinner. Nobody's like that. We strive to be and we don't even come close. But he was all of that. And could do these incredible works of healing and miracles. And the reason God sent him there was for them to see that he should have equal honor with the father. That's why we give equal honor to the son as the father. Because that's what God wants. And then in verse 24 Jesus said back in backing up in John chapter 5 he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life wow hear receive the communication and believe so the communication is very clear Jesus is actually present the air is there the communication to, to get it all is there. The, the medium is there. He's the medium of God to us. They have ears that work. They can hear him. 
So we're talking about witnesses. We're talking about testimony. Something to be something to be believed is what we're talking about. So to have eternal life it's more than hearing that's required. It's taking it in and accepting it as true. Something to be believed. They have to believe. So incredulity is the communication problem going on here. They don't believe it. Even though they, they see it and it's right in front of their face. So it's unbelief. They see it. They hear it. They reject all of it. So as witnesses there are. Verse 36 tells us. The works that Jesus does. The very works that I do. Testify about me that the father has sent me. So that means the great failure. Isn't on the part of the communicator. It's, it's not the fault of the medium. The works are evident and they can be investigated and paid attention to all you want. You can bring in all the doctors of the world to say how did that man get well. It's impossible. Only God could do that. You could, you, you could do all of that. So it's not the communicator. It's not the medium. The great failure is the heart of those on the receiving end. What they believe. They have prejudge the situation they're not investigating they're prejudging it their motives are selfish the religious leaders in Jesus day were guarding their authority against any rival they're protecting their own power and their own influence and we'll see that more next week and when he gets further into this thing they're not serving the truth they're really not about that that's not what's moving them so God is doing something wonderful and they don't like it. They need to listen to Jesus and humble themselves but they can't. Why can't they? Verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him whom he sent. God sent the greatest revelation of himself anybody could ever want. His very son in, in our form, in human form. Later in the gospel, Jesus will tell Philip, his disciple, he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, right? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's the point here. Clearly, Jesus of Nazareth is God, visible, living among us. He can speak to us on our level while possessing all the wisdom and all the knowledge of an infinite God available to him, even as a human being. He's everything we need to know. He's God personally present. You know nobody ever asked Jesus a question. A deep theological question. And he went. Hmm. Let me think about that one. Never happened. No I, I'll answer that many times. If you ask me deep theological question. Hmm. I don't know. Let me think about that some more. Jesus never said. Let me think about that some more. He knows the scriptures. In fact the Bible says he spoke as not as the scribes the experts in the Bible but as one who has authority. That's the end of that's that that's the comment at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in John chapter 7. He spoke as one having authority because he knows the scriptures. So the great failure of Jesus most intense opponents who are ready to kill him is that they have the scriptures. They know the scriptures but as our Lord says you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he has sent. Christ is the door to understanding. He's the, the, the door to wisdom. He's the door to know God's will. He's the door to understand the scriptures. He's the way in and it stands open 
because he's right there with them. And these guys, it's like taking the door and slamming it shut. We don't want to hear that. You deserve to die. So it's the scriptures that are the final witness to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the scriptures. And that's what the rest of John chapter 5 is all about. How they missed the great witness of the scriptures, Moses and the prophets. That's for next week. (laughs) But listen, the evidence is in. The evidence is in. We have all we need. So you have everything you need to take a clear-eyed look at Jesus of Nazareth. There's no one like him. There has never been at any time anyone like him anywhere in the world in any culture ever. He is uniquely himself and he's the only one there is to even consider that way. He is worthy of your confidence and of your worship. Let's pray. Our great Lord, you have indeed come down and the world has never been the same. You are the way, the truth, and the life. If we believe, we ask you to help us to rejoice in our Savior. And if we don't believe, we ask you to reveal your Son into our hearts so that we can see his greatness and revel in the truth. In his name we pray, amen.